0: In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of new life. Amen. Well, today's uh, reading from the prophet Isaiah sort of propels us into the season of Advent with a heartfelt cry to God. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down to God, to make your name known to your enemies, so that the nations might tremble in your presence. This cry pleads for God to come and act again in our world to bring salvation and justice and peace. And don't you sometimes want to pray that prayer of Isaiah when you hear the news and you hear perhaps of yet another tragedy or another bombing or conflict or tragic disaster, that incredibly uh, sad, horrific rekindling of war in Gaza or that slow-burning war in Ukraine. Uh, We had someone, uh, part of our Messy Church, who's from Ukraine, so we've got people who are close uh, to this. Other parts of the world long out of the news, but still festering. God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down to bring justice and healing to so many innocent ones in our world who are suffering and full of sadness and grief. And Isaiah has this, you can just imagine what it must have been like, this great sort of trumpeting cry that starts off with a hiss and a roar, come down, just as you did on Mount Sinai, uh, God, making it shake with your power and your glory. Now, we might be a little less enthusiastic about more earth-shaking, thank you, here, but still, reveal yourself, God, conquer our enemies, including those last great enemies of disease and death. How we long for that. But then I wonder if you noticed Isaiah's prophecy takes a bit of an interesting twist. Uh, Perhaps all this power and glory and awesome display of holiness makes the people of Israel squirm a bit. And they realize the gap between their frail, fallible humanity and the awesome majesty of God. But how they express that They're not sort of into confession. Uh, It's all a bit back the front because they turn on God and they say, God, it's all your fault. God, you were angry and so we sinned. And because you hid yourself, we were the ones who sinned. No one calls on your name because you've hidden your face from us and delivered us into the hand of evil. And it's almost like in a fit of petulance or something, rather than acknowledging their own failings and things, they push it back all onto God. God, it's not fair, they say. Look at the state the world's in. If only you would do something obvious. Come down and fix it. Knock out our enemies then of course we'll worship you. Can you blame us for getting distracted by a few other things on the way, like Christmas shopping? You know, we've been busy, it's the end of the year, things to do, places to go. That in essence is a perennial problem for all the great theologians and also atheists alike. They say, where is God? That's perhaps the biggest question that people ask. Where is God in the face of innocent suffering in our world? When evil seems to triumph and human lives seem to be just that awful phrase, collateral damage, unavoidable fallout. Where is God in all that? Is God silent and is God hidden? One of the books that I've lent out most during my ministry is this very small book of Philip Yancey's, and it's getting a bit, I think it's been in somebody's bath by the looks. Um, It's a little book called Disappointment with God. Three questions no one asks aloud. And the three questions are these. Is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? And I think it's one of the ones I've lent out most to people to read. I'm always amazed when it comes back, actually. because one response to God's seeming hiddenness or absence from our world and from a suffering world, it's been expressed in a rather beautiful little story. I think sometimes a story is the best way to think about these deep issues. Now, the story goes like this. One day, God was talking with the angels about where to hide within creation so that humankind might not find God too easily but might grow through their searching for God. Well, the first angel suggested the depths of the earth as a hiding place. Go as deep as you can, dig right down. No, said God, eventually they will learn how to dig mines and they will find me too soon. So particularly if they're West Coasters, I think. The second, a second angel said, I've got an idea. Why don't you hide on their moon? That's going to take them, you know, the moon's pretty tough. That's pretty hard to get to. Uh, No, said God, eventually, uh, God, of course, can see all time. They will learn how to get to the moon with their technology. They will find me too soon. Third angel finally came up, said, I've got a great idea. Why don't you hide yourself in their own hearts? Because they'll never think to look there. So God did just that and that is why sometimes it takes so long for us to find God step by step as we live our lives and finding that actually looking in our own hearts is what makes us grow as we find the love of God for us, that we're called and chosen to be God's children. And that was the lovely point that we came to at the end of that reading from Isaiah. Isaiah is grounded, even though he sometimes lets off steam and really, you know, he's a great prophet, but he also is grounded deeply in his soul, in his relationship with God. And I think almost the most important word in that reading has three letters, yet. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. I don't know if any of you have had a go at potting, you know, working with a potter's wheel and actually trying to do that. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And even when it goes wrong, God can rework it in a lovely way. A master potter can always rework the clay when there's a blemish in it or if something goes wrong. Now consider, says Isaiah, we are all your people. Well, 500 years later from Isaiah, we come to our gospel reading, and Mark portrays there Jesus. It's towards the end um, of his gospel. Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's his farewell address to them before his passion, before his journey to the cross. And they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple. You can still do that today. I've stood up there on the Mount of Olives, and you look down, Uh, over Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And Jesus has predicted the destruction not only of the temple that was there in that time, but indeed of the whole city of Jerusalem. And as you heard, it was all expressed in these what we call apocalyptic images of immense suffering, total cosmic collapse. The universe itself seems to be unraveling. But at that point, when the people cry out again, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, we hear the Son of Man will come on the clouds with great power and glory, just as the prophet Daniel predicted, and God's angels will gather the elect and rescue them and bring them to safety. Now, as Mark weaves his Gospel together, we think that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels, uh, written perhaps around the 70s AD, somewhere around there. And we know at that time that Jesus' uh, followers in Jerusalem had been caught up in the Jewish war against the Roman occupiers. And that was the years 66 to 70. We know that in the year 70, that there was the total destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. By the Romans. We know historically that that happened. So maybe this gospel is written in light of that wartime, perhaps. Perhaps Mark is reassuring his anxious Christian community that Jesus had actually foreseen this 40 years before. He'd prophesied that this was going to happen to this generation, and he'd urged them to keep alert, to keep awake, to look for the signs of God at work to look up even with hope, even in the midst of suffering. Now we might say, well, 2000 years on, where is that son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory? Centuries have passed, we say, and there's still that cry of our hearts for God to tear open the heavens and come down and to act in our world, to vindicate all those who are crying out today for justice and longing for peace and we can say well perhaps it's not surprising that most of the people we spend our lives among during the week have long since given up on a God who seems silent or hidden or unmoved by a suffering world and yet yet that three letter word again and yet God has come, not in those apocalyptic acts of judgment and destruction, not inflicting terror on all sides, but silently, hidden away in a small backwater of the Middle East, crisscrossed by empires and armies even then, and still today. Rowan Williams, our former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a beautiful poem called Advent Calendar, which you might like to look up. But it ends like this, I think, in a very powerful way. He will come. He will come. Will come like crying in the night. Like blood. Like breaking. As the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come like child. He will come like child. Human like us. Made of potter's clay like us. Breakable sharing our joys and sorrows, vulnerable, willing to share in this world's suffering. Jesus called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, taking on that sting of sin and death from the inside, experiencing it, drinking that cup to its dregs, being there on the cross for us, sharing our suffering and only then bursting out the other side into new life that we in Christ will share. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. God has come down in Christ. He will come like child as we wait this year again. So may we find our deep hope this Advent in Jesus who comes among us hidden silent. I always love that midnight service. where are just coming in the quiet. We put the baby in the manger. And Jesus comes too when we invite him again into our hearts to reveal to us the God who loves us and has chosen us to be his children too. Amen.